Our Bible reading today is from 3rd Acts, verses 32 to 39. God has raised Jesus to this life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made Jesus, whom you have crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, What shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. May the Lord add the blessing to the reading of his word. Um, unfortunately, uh, last year I preached on Martin Luther and uh, the importance for us, uh, theology, um, and I preached uh, three sermons, 499 years of Martin Luther, and uh, people came up to me this year, a lot, a lot of you came up to me and said, Pastor, do you know it's the 500th year anniversary of Martin Luther? And I said to all of them, I said, yeah, last year I preached a sermon on 499 years after Martin Luther. Everyone had forgotten. Uh, the, the event is important enough that uh, we're doing it again. This is a completely new sermon. You'll not have heard this one before. We're going to use Martin Luther and uh, his life and uh, the changes that he brought in as an illustration of the gospel. Um, this, uh, today we're going to just talk about his life and times up until October 31st, 1517. That's the date he nails the 95 Theses to the door of Wittenberg Chapel. And uh, the Western world was changed. Uh, because of Luther, Germany is unified. It was not unified at the time. Uh, Martin Luther is the one who gave them the German language. And uh, because, of, because of Martin Luther, we now have Baptist churches and Presbyterian churches and Pentecostal churches uh, Methodist churches, the Church of England, Anglican churches, along with the Roman Catholic Church. It's all because of Martin Luther and the change that he brought, the change that he brought in. So uh, please bear with me, and uh, we'll get to the scripture closer to the end. If you go to the next slide there, Lynn. First of all, Luther's world. Uh, Luther lived in a time when the world was changing, and uh, the changes were probably bigger than what you have gone through in your lifetime. In our lifetimes, we've seen a massive change. When I was a kid and I wanted to find out information, I would go to my encyclopedia and open my encyclopedia and read about a camel or read about a horse. And uh, we all, that's how we all got our information. And if you wanted to know a little bit more, you would go to your library. And your library might have three books on a horse. Uh, today, if you want to know information, of course, you go to Google, right? 
and uh, you can find more information on a horse than you could read in a lifetime. And uh, massive change in our own lives brought about by the computer, the microchip, and it will continue to change our lives drastically over the next 20 to 30 years. The changes for Luther's time were even greater than that. And uh, on here, I listed some of the reasons why the changes were so great. 1453 was the fall of Constantinople. And the Turks had overrun Constantinople and were pushing into Europe. And what it did was it pushed Eastern scholars that spoke Greek, and they flooded to the West. And the Dark Ages ended. Because the West had been stuck in a rut and they read all of their Latin texts, and uh, that was their basis of knowledge. And so their basis of knowledge was Aristotle, and they read it through Latin texts. And along came all of these scholars fleeing from the East, and they brought their Eastern text, they brought, they brought the knowledge of the Greek language, and for the first time in a thousand years, scholars were starting to read Greek texts for themselves. And it caused a flowering of science and a flowering of biblical studies and uh, changed the world. We call it the Renaissance, uh, along with the Reformation, Enlightenment, uh, huge changes. We'll look a little bit more about that. Notice 1453, fall of Constantinople, that was the end of the Byzantine Empire that had lasted a thousand years. 1455, the first printing of the Gutenberg Bible, I'll talk about that in a second. 1483, Luther is born. 1492, Columbus discovers America. I remember that because in 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. It's the only date in history I can remember because <laughs> I got a little rhyme to help me remember 1492. It's probably the only date you remember too. At the same time, there is maybe the greatest uh, expression of the arts. And Michelangelo in 1508 begins to, paint the, I mean, begins to paint the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel, and he finishes in 1512. By the way, he finishes October 31st, 1512, on All Hallows' Eve. And uh, the date is important because the next day is All Saints' Day, November the 1st. It's a feast and that's when you celebrate all the saints. And you would go to church, celebrate all the saints. So the Sistine Chapel is finished on All Hallows' Eve so that the next day everyone could go and worship the saints and venerate the saints and uh, have some great things happen for them. And at the same time period, Martin Luther, 1517, nails his 95 theses to the door of the chapel. Let's go to the next slide. This is just a map to remind you where Constantinople is. It's on that little purple part, kind of middle upper screen. Uh, Constantinople is now Istanbul, part of Turkey. And uh, the only part left of the Byzantine Empire was that little purple part where, where Constantinople is and the bottom part of Greece. Now, that was the only part left. Um, if you go to the next slide. Um, the printing press changed the world. 
I, I did read a, a few weeks ago that uh, when people voted to, to determine what was the most important event in the past 1,000 years, most important discovery, this was the most important. The idea that you could print and produce books cheaply. And uh, so I've written down a few things. Uh, the first book printed in Europe was the Gutenberg Bible. He printed 180, Gutenberg did. And uh, to give you an idea of how technology goes together, he printed 55 of those Bibles on leather, vellum. And uh, that's the way most texts used to be written, on vellum. They didn't have paper. And uh, to produce one Bible in vellum, it took 170 calfskins. Listen, that, that's a lot of leather. They were prohibitively expensive. You could not buy a book. That's why you could, that's why you could not own a book, because uh, to, to produce a, a leather-bound and a leather-paged book, to have somebody copy something by hand, uh, some books were worth more than a lifetime of your earnings. And so the printing press changed everything. And the invention of paper at the same time. And Gutenberg obviously invented a new kind of ink that set on top of the paper instead of water-based that ran into the, into the paper. All of that went together. And uh, as uh, the printing press took off, every city had their own printing press. But they had nothing to print. And along came Luther, and he had arguments with the church and they printed everything he wrote and dispersed it throughout Europe. There was a time Luther was the most famous person in Europe. Uh, I, I was listening to one preacher who said, talking about Luther, he said, 90% of Germany was behind Luther, and the other 10% wanted to kill the Pope. That means 100% behind him. If you didn't do the math quickly enough. If you go to the next slide... Uh, at this same time period, uh, France, England, Spain, Portugal were all looking west. They could not build ships fast enough. Uh, that is a replica of the Santa Maria. That's in Columbus, Ohio. And uh, it's a dinky little ship. And uh, that was the biggest ship Columbus had. The other two, the Nina and the Pinta, were even smaller than that. And because uh, they were made for sailing around the Mediterranean. They weren't made for sailing the ocean. So in 1492, a tremendous shipbuilding wave took place. Almost every, every, every city that had a port, they were building ships and uh, sailing to the west. Let's go to the next slide. Same time period, uh, Michelangelo, maybe the greatest artist who's ever lived, painting the, the, the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel, and uh, this is the creation of Adam. And uh, you notice how many years it takes him. Luther visits Rome in 1510. And I, I just wonder, did Luther poke his head in there to see what Michelangelo was painting? And uh, maybe, maybe not. If you go to the next slide. At the same time period, uh, we have a corrupt Roman Catholic church Notice these three popes. Uh, by the way, the Roman Catholic Church today all agrees that these popes are corrupt. And these are three of the worst popes they ever had at the same time as Luther. Alexander VI was a Borgia, 
And Alexander the Sick Borgia family is from Valencia in Spain. And it was during his time as a Roman Catholic Pope that uh, they had discovered South America. And so he drew a line. And he drew a line, and everything to the east of the line belonged to Portugal, and everything west of the line belonged to Spain. And so all of Central America and South America, except for Brazil, became Spanish. Brazil, Portuguese, because of the line that the Pope drew. Now notice he drew the line that favored Spain, because he was from Spain. He, 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 more, he cared more about Spain than he did about Portugal. That's why he drew the line the way he did. Anyways, Alexander VI had uh, a number of children. He had them from different mistresses. Uh, they were still married to their husbands. That was part of the cover. And uh, he actually found them jobs within the church. Julius II is known as the warrior pope. And he begins the painting of Sistine Chapel. And he begins to build St. Peter's, runs out of money. Pope Leo X is a Medici pope from Italy, and he becomes pope, and uh, he wants to build St. Peter's. He doesn't have any money. And so this is where the problem begins. How is the pope going to get money? Uh, he comes with a number of ways. One way is simony, selling a church office. So he actually sells bishops and archbishops to whoever can pay the most money. He also sells indulgences. And an indulgence is um, if you give some money, the Pope will get you years off of purgatory. You don't have to suffer and be purged for your own sin. You pay the money and you get off. And in fact, he needed so much money that he actually lets you to pay him money to get dead people off of their sins as well. Uh, I'll, take, I'll say more about it in a second. If you go to the next slide. Frederick the Elector is the ruler of Saxony. This is where Luther lives. And uh, he is a, an elector of the Holy Roman Empire. That means they elect the emperor. They want Frederick to be the emperor. And they cast three, there are seven electors, seven votes. Three people vote for him. He doesn't become the emperor because he won't vote for himself. Everyone respects him. And they, everyone thinks highly of him. All the other electors, the Pope thinks highly, other rulers think highly of Frederick the Wise. He wants to start, he founds a, a, a new university in Wittenberg, Wittenberg. And he needs professors. And there happens to be an Augustinian convent there. And they pull the monks in as professors. And Luther is one of those new professors. Just completed his doctorate in theology. They hire him as an elector. Now, here we're going to get into our theology and why it matters. Frederick the Wise wanted to help out his subjects. And so he began collecting relics from the saints. And he collected, by the end of his collection, 19,000 relics. He put them in the castle church, which became called All Saints Church. It was called All Saints Church because he had relics from almost all the saints. Now, I didn't believe what they were telling me when I read that he had 19,000 relics. 
So I did some more research and more reading. And here's what I found out. In 1493, Frederick did a pilgrimage to the Holy Land. By the way, the reason why you did a pilgrimage was because the Pope would give you time off of purgatory for doing a pilgrimage. That counts as one of those special good deeds so that you can have sins forgiven and wiped out because you do a pilgrimage. He does a pilgrimage to Israel. He returns with the thumb of St. Anne, his favorite saint. Anna is the mother of Mary, the mother of Jesus. He returns with her thumb. He begins to collect other relics. In 1507, the Pope writes every bishop to share relics with Frederick. Frederick had a team of relic hunters. In fact, there's actually a novel out there based on relic hunters, based on this individual. His brother also collects relics. By 1509, he had 5,005 relics. There is actually a book dedicated to his relics. You can look at it. It's, it's at the uh, Art, Institute, at, uh, Art Institute in Chicago. Um, in 1509, he had, had 5,005 relics. Here's some of the relics that he had. Uh, remember when the thorns were placed, placed on Jesus' head? He had one of the thorns that pierced his brow and caused him to bleed. He had a tooth from St. Jerome. He had four pieces of St. Chrysostom. He had six pieces of St. Bernard. He had four pieces of St. Augustine. He had four hairs from the Virgin Mary. He had three pieces from Mary's cloak four pieces from Mary's girdle. He had seven pieces from the veil sprinkled with Jesus' blood. He had one piece of the swaddling clothes. He had 13 pieces of Jesus' crib. He had one piece of straw from the manger. He had one piece of gold from the wise men. He had three pieces of myrrh. He had one piece of Jesus' beard. He had one of the nails driven into his hands. He had one piece of bread eaten at the Last Supper. He had one piece of the stone that Jesus stood on as he ascended into heaven. And I like this one. He had one piece of Moses' burning bush. <laughs> 19,000. 19,000. Now, it's funny. In Frederick's lifetime, he collects 19,000. Luther starts preaching. And four years after Luther starts preaching he closes all the relics so that no one can see them again. And in fact, today, out of those 19,000 relics, we only have one left. By the way, they were all spurious anyways, right? We only have one left. The only one that we have left is a piece of glass that his, his uh, descendant gives to Luther in honor of Luther and because Luther was so important, they kept everything that Luther had been given. So that's the only relic left, the one given to Luther. But Frederick is actually trying to help people. Because for each relic that you view, you get 100 days off of purgatory. 
That's when, if you're, if you're a believer in Jesus and you die, you ha- your sins have to be purged. And for each relic that you view, you've got 100 days. Well, he's got 19,000. 1,900,000 days. By going to Wittenberg on All Saints Day, November the 1st, that's how many days you could have off of purgatory. Now, he was doing that for his people, for, the, for their good. Uh, he also wanted a little money for you to see that. The Pope had actually said that each relic was worth 100 days. That was a special deal that had been made with, with, uh, with uh, Frederick, and he got an indulgence from the Pope so that everyone who did that would get their 100 days off of purgatory for each relic that they viewed. If you go to the next slide. Uh, these are various things that the popes were giving out uh, indulgences for, forgiveness of sins. If you went on a crusade, uh, the pope would forgive you your sins and you would get out of purgatory. Or if you paid for somebody to go on a crusade. Uh, if you undertook a pilgrimage. And that's why uh, Roman Catholics and people in the Middle Ages would undertake pilgrimages. You would get special dispensation and special forgiveness of sins. It was a special good deed, and uh, it, was, it was something good that you could do. Uh, there were relics and feast days. And uh, by the way, all of that, this is the problem, all of that is fraudulent. It's a fraud. It's not real. The, fro- the, pope, the, the pope is telling you lies. God does not give you special forgiveness of sin for any of those things. Right? He gives you forgiveness of sins out of the goodness of his heart because Jesus Christ pays for our sins. That's why he does it. You don't, you, don't, you don't have to earn it. You don't have to do a certain thing in order to be forgiven. Uh, that's the problem. It's a fraud. Um, sad to think of uh, the church de- defrauding people for hundreds of years getting them to do these things uh, because otherwise people wouldn't do them. So in 15, actually in 1515, uh, the Pope wants to build St. Peter's. He comes up with a deal. The new Archbishop of Mainz buys his archbishopric and uh, he has to pay 10,000 gold ducats The Pope wants 12,000 gold ducats, and he says, I want 12,000 gold ducats because there's 12 apostles. Albert writes back and says, well, I want to pay 7,000 gold ducats because there are seven deadly sins. So they finally settle on 10,000 gold ducats because there are 10 commandments. And he becomes an archbishop at age 25. So he holds two bishops, and he's the archbishop of Germany, age 25, because he pays 10,000 gold ducats for it. Now there, but now there's a problem. How is Albert going to get his 10,000 gold ducats? The Pope comes up with an arrangement with Albert. He can sell indulgences. 
So all you have to do is go up to the priest, you pay him the money, he hands you the indulgence, and you get out of purgatory for your money. They can't get enough money, so now you can also do it for people who are dead. You can actually pay money and get your dead relatives out of purgatory. Uh, the deal is that 50% of the money goes to Albert, 50% of the money goes to Pope because he has to build St. Peter's. If you go to the next screen, uh, this is St. Peter's. For hundreds of years, this is the largest church in the world, um, holds 60,000 people. Uh, it cost a fortune to build. Uh, the Italians didn't want to pay for it. France wouldn't send any money. Spain wouldn't pay for it. England wouldn't pay for it. So they decided, you know who will get to pay for it? Northern Europeans. Because they're too stupid to know any better. There was a little bit of uh, prejudice and racism. They looked down on the Germans. The Germans were all divided in a bunch of states. So nowhere else were they selling indulgences for St. Peter's except in Germany, Denmark, Holland, Sweden, Poland, all of those northern territories. They were selling indulgences. Half of the money would go to build St. Peter's. St. Peter's is built by fraud. Sad. Sad, right? This is a historic landmark. How many of you have been to St. Peter's? Okay, a number of you. Uh, sad, sad to think that the only way we can build this is by telling people lies and getting them money really for nothing. If you go to the next slide. On October 31st, 1516, All Hallows' Eve, the day before All Saints' Day, Luther gets up in the pulpit of All Saints' Church and he preaches against indulgences for viewing saints. He said it's not right that you can come and view the straw from Jesus' manger and you don't have to do good deeds. That counts as your good deed. That's ridiculous. Um, Frederick the Wise was not too happy with that sermon on that day. The next year, along came, comes Tetzel, preaching indulgences, and get, if you can just pay your money, you can have time off of purgatory, this counts as your good deed, doesn't really matter how wicked you are, you've got this pass. In fact, Luther was talking to his parishioners about it, and he goes, how come I'm not seeing you in confession? And they were saying, we don't have to go to confession anymore, we've got a piece of paper. Even, even though Frederick wouldn't allow them to sell indulgences in Wittenberg, they would just go across the river to the next state and there would, they would buy their indulgences and they'd come back and they'd show Luther, we don't even have to come and listen to you preach anymore. We've got an indulgence. We can live any way we want to and the Pope has said that our sins are taken care of. And so on October 31st, 1517, All Hallows' Eve again, he goes and nails 95 theses with regard to indulgences 
on the door of Wittenberg Chapel that's kind of like the bulletin board for all the university students. And he nails those theses on the door in Latin. And someone takes them down, translates them into German, takes them to the printer, and within a couple of weeks, everybody in Germany is reading Martin Luther's 95 Theses. Uh, the world changed. No one had known, no one knew the world had changed, but the world changed uh, on that day. If you go to the next slide. This is thesis number one. This is as far as we're going to get today. So thesis number one. Now, by the way, this is the whole thesis. So when we, when we say there are 95 of them, basically it's 95 sentences, 95 ideas with regard to can you sell indulgences like that? Here's the thesis. Our Lord and Master Jesus Christ in saying repent ye intended that the whole life of believers should be one of penitence. In other words, your whole life is supposed to be about repentance. Your whole life is supposed to be about saying, I cannot be a sinner. I should turn away from sin. I should turn to God. I should try to live a holy life. I should be sorrowful for the wrong things that I do. It should be a life thing. There's no one thing that says, listen, live, live however you want, and this gets you out of all your evil deeds. That's ridiculous. That's what he meant. When Jesus says repent, he goes, this is, this is a life of this. By the way, when we say repent, we mean you're turning away from your sin. The other side is belief. I'm turning towards God. Two sides of the same coin. Repentance, that's my sin. It's terrible. I acknowledge it's bad. And I need to believe in God and turn towards God and trust in Him. From to. Uh, you don't need a piece of paper and that says, okay, I can now do whatever I want because I've got my indulgence. Obviously, that's ridiculous and it's a fraud, a spiritual fraud. Go to the next slide. Whoa, that's tiny. So your passage that I printed in the bulletin today from Acts chapter 2 is the first First Christian sermon ever preached, preached by Peter on Pentecost in Jerusalem. And he was explaining why uh, the apostles filled with the Holy Spirit were speaking in tongues. People thought they were drunk. And Peter said, they're not drunk. This is the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. That's why they're acting this way. And uh, then he tells them, how has this happened? Jesus Christ crucified on a cross. Jesus Christ resurrected the third day, all according to the Scriptures. And this means that Jesus Christ is now the Lord and Savior of all. Of course, he blames the Jews. He says, you have crucified him. The people hear that. What should we do? He says, repent and be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. Now, on your slide there, 
This is where the Greek and the Latin differ. This is why it was so important that Greek scholars came from Constantinople or from the Byzantine Empire with their Greek texts. Because as you translate the Greek, the Greek says, repent. Metanoeo, change of mind. Change your mind about your sin. You're turning away from that. You're turning towards God. But notice in the Latin. The Latin says, do penance. It's kind of like if you, you do an activity, you do something good, that's how you're saved. Who tells you what is good? The Pope does. The church tells you what is good. By the way, we'll talk about that in the next few sermons. It's only the church that can tell you what is the good you can do. You do penance and you're baptized. The one is an activity. Luther says what God wants from us is a change of person. It's it's, it's who we are that counts. It's what happens inside of us that's so important. Not just going out and doing a good deed. Repent and be baptized. It's translated the same way in Matthew chapter 4. When Matthew encapsulates Jesus' sermons and he says, here's what Jesus went about saying. He went about preaching, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And again, Roman Catholic, Latin text, do penance for the kingdom of God is at hand. Go out and do your good deeds. Now, Luther would say repentance includes good deeds. Absolutely. But it's a change on the inside. It's a change of who you are that becomes part of your life. It's each and every day. It's not this one-time thing. So for Luther, repentance is who you are. And for the Roman Catholic, the penance is an act. It's something that you do. So, for instance, if you were to go to the Roman Catholic Church, and it's now called the Sacrament of Reconciliation, it includes these things. You would go... Confess, confession is part one. Contrition is part two. So the priest has to think that you're sorrowful. Absolution is part three. The priest says, yes, God forgives you your sin. And then part four, you do penance. In other words, you have to do something good because you've done something bad. And so that's when the priest would say, go and say 10 Hail Marys and 20 Our Fathers and so on. Something like that. Repentance becomes something that you do. And Luther goes, that's crazy. It needs to be a lifestyle and it needs to be who you are on the inside. Um, If I would say that's the major difference between Christianity, what we see in the scriptures... And what everyone else is trying to do. Every, everyone else is trying to live a good life so that they can live a good enough life that God will look at them and say, you know something, you're good enough. You'll never be good enough. You never will be. We are right with God because we ask for forgiveness of sins and he freely gives it out of his grace. It's not earned. 
and it's not dessert. Uh, let's look to 